0: This week, we're talking all about the underwriter of the future. General insurers ultimately will live or die by the quality of that underwriting. But the game is changing, and underwriters who succeed in the future will have different skills and just generally a different approach. So with us today to discuss this really fascinating topic is Nick Lyne, who is Chief Underwriting Officer at Markel. It's going to be a fascinating discussion, so we don't mess around, we're jumping right in. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market.
1: I'm Charles Cronier
0: and I'm Jessica Clark. and Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP.
1: We'd love to hear from you so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website.
0: Let's kick off with this week's episode. The news story that I was going to bring up this week, It was the sexist comments Amanda Blanc, the CEO of Viva, received um, at the AGM. I think it was last week now. So they included comments like signifies she's not the right man for the job and she's not wearing the trousers. And, you know, the one that I think really stuck in my mind is their good basic housekeeping activities, which needs to be done or something like that. And yeah, I guess it doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. But I do hope you're right, Nick, that we are moving forward. And what was really good, I thought, was that it was called out, it was talked about, and actually that is how we move forward, is through education, through understanding, through recognising it.
2: Well, I think a big a big topic, certainly like last year's dive-in, was allyship, which is calling things out, and I think training people to be aware of what is acceptable and what isn't, even though it should be obvious, but sometimes these Freudian slips, some people call them microaggressions, having people call them out is so important, having the bravery to call them out and knowing that actually, if you're in a room of 20 people, and one person said something a bit silly, you know that the other 19 people all thinking the same as you, which is, I can't believe he just said that. And if you call it out, the other 18 people are going to be going, well done for calling it out, I'm with you. So it is disappointing. And you know, we've had a few things going on in the politics the House of Commons recently, which aren't so great either. Great article in The Economist this week about taking us back to the early 90s and Tory sleeves, all that kind of thing. But we have moved on so far. And I do try and see the positive in the way like, our industry has moved on that front. And I, I see a lot of great momentum. And there will still be the odd thing that happens that reminds us that we're not there yet. But having things called out is big progress. And to me, there's actually quite a
1: strong link between what we've just been discussing and the idea of strategy and underwriting moving into a, a new phase because I think some of the technology and science required to improve underwriting has been there for some time. But actually what hasn't been there is the culture and the openness to new ways of looking at things. And maybe that's what will finally cause us to see some real evolution
2: in this area in the next few years. That's my hope anyway. Oh, I, I completely agree. I think it's it's frustrating because I think people like you and I might have seen the need to do things differently many years ago but things weren't aligned and i often talk about you know, the old iphone couldn't have been invented even the year before it was invented it would have been twice the size or twice the thickness or twice the weight and the iphone couldn't have been invented any earlier because all the stuff wasn't ready and i think we're at that point now where we have the data the technology we know what api stands for now and we have people who are keen to understand who are keen to use it as well and the culture is there to take us forward which maybe it hasn't been before when some of these market initiatives have been tried before and failed.
0: I think that's a really interesting point that you can have a great idea, but there's so many things underlying it that need to align in order for that really to be taken forward and be embedded. So you might have the tech in place, but as you say, unless you've got the culture of the people, then it's never going to be adopted. Or you might have a great culture and people, but not have the expertise to deal with the technology or understand it. So yeah, it is so many different angles play out and you need them all to align for it to work
1: what we've talked about there just made me think i had a bit of a sort of cultural moment yesterday i was working in the lloyds lab in the lloyds building and i came out sort of i don't know 5 6 p.m. and sort of walked out past leadenhall market and just saw you know tons of people pouring out of the pubs and you know the lamb and you know, your classic it's underwriters and brokers having a having a drink and a chat i was really torn between thinking this is really brilliant and we're back to all those, you know, face-to-face relationships, et cetera. I was torn between that on the one hand and on the other hand thinking, oh, this market is a dinosaur and it is so ripe for disruption. And we, you know, we might see some bloodshed in the next
2: few years. I mean, that's a great sort of PhD type question, isn't it? This discuss. And I think <laughs> that's a huge topic there about how the market has changed during COVID. And I remember that you know, two years ago and two months, so I remember that March, somebody said to me, or looks like we're gonna to have to go and work from home next week. I might have to start learning how to use PPL. Well, what a funny thing to think about now. You know, that has happened and that can't be undone. And talking about those things all aligning, that technology progress that we've been pushed through in the last two years won't go backwards. And yet, we've all gone home, we've all worked, you know, effectively to some extent in the last two years and, and you know had great success with our businesses, and yet. I go into the office, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mostly, and the building is, is filling up. The underwriting floors are filling up. The underwriters are coming in. The brokers are coming and they want to see each other. The juniors, especially, you know, the younger underwriters who've joined during COVID, they've started their careers during COVID. They want to meet their seniors, their colleagues and start building relationships. And that might happen in the LAM, It might happen in the office, but it, it certainly happens face to face.
1: Would you agree that underwriting, more than most professions, is one where you really do need to learn through apprenticeship and through sitting next to
2: somebody who's done it for 30 years? Oh, that's a really good question because you know we like to think that most things can be learned. Well, it's a mixture of learning from a book and learning from dealing with people, and that should probably go for all all types of jobs, really. You know, Clearly, we're in an industry which is focused on face-to-face and building trust between broker and underwriter so they can do business together is important. So I think with a lot of jobs, you know, in in your roles and, and my roles and our team's roles, people want to come and sit next to somebody and they want to hear them working. They want to hear them on the phone or talking to each other. This whole osmosis water cooler thing, I think it's hard to replace. And I think that's why we've got our offices are filling up because people do want to come in and learn by hearing things over the desk and hearing the phone calls.
1: And I suppose one of the things on my mind is that with that kind of side-by-side learning, learning by watching, by apprenticeship effectively, you know, the more experienced generation passes on its habits to the next generation. And there's, there's probably some good habits and there's probably some bad habits. And so, you know, might that be something worth us just exploring for a couple of minutes? What are some of the good habits that you'd want the underwriter of the future to retain? And then probably what are some of the habits that need to kind of
2: be, you know, packed away and, and moved on from? That's a great question. Might come back onto diversity there as well. But certainly in terms of technical habits, I think what we want to be passed on, the full underwriting set of skills the understanding of the what I think of as the whole arc of underwriting from business development to having a technical expertise in an area where you can underwrite and choose risks and decide pricing and, and, and risk selection, to being able to analyze a book and know what, what's running hot and cold and do a bit of portfolio management, dealing with your actuaries, dealing with your results and presenting and all that kind of ability. What habits we perhaps we don't want are sort of that gut feel stuff. We probably want to see a little bit more a little bit more emphasis and this is sort of the art and the science and as actuaries coming into the market you know 20 years ago we had to deal with this didn't we? we we're trying to bring a little bit more science to the art so perhaps what we don't want is comments like well we can't write this because we lost a ton of money on it 20 years ago because the world has changed or we like these risks because they always run well just because we've our biases stop us noticing the claimers when they come in so i think that kind of thing we want to move away from but certainly the good underwriters of today And maybe recent past, their ability to develop relationships and warm relationships, and travel and develop trust with people. I think we definitely wanted to keep that that sort of secret source.
1: How realistic is it to think that some of the underwriters of the future would be people who maybe come from an actuarial background? You're obviously a fairly important and unique example, but how much are we going to see that in practice, or is it really true what they say? You know, if you think like an actuary, you'll never write any business.
2: Well, first of all, I say I'm certainly not unique by any means. I know uh, even across our market, you and I know people who've done the same as me, and there are plenty of them. And in fact, in my team in underwriting, in my kind of central underwriting team, we've got actuaries all over the place, to be honest, who've left the actuarial team and gone into underwriting divisions, mostly because they've been pulled. People have said, do you want to come and join my team? Because I want your way of thinking. So I don't even think of it as actuaries becoming underwriters. I think of it more as people who might have trained as actuaries, training as underwriters. You know, I've had people come and see me. People get pointed to me to give advice on becoming an actuary. And I say, well, that's great. If you want to do this course, do exams, be a professional, Those certain letters after your name, join the institute. Or actually, given the skills you've got, go and be an underwriter. Take a different route. So I don't think of them as being one or the other. But I know from a kind of control Point of view, actuaries have to be independent from underwriters to some degree, from this kind of control function point of view. But I think the closer working will almost merge the two. We won't even worry about. Oh, hang on, used to be an actuary, now you're underwriting or the other way around. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to change a lot. I think the people we the people we're seeing now coming into underwriting. Yeah, sometimes the first questions I get is, "Well, can I see the pricing tool?" Oh. Which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that happened to me quite a long time ago. We hired a new director of one of our divisions. And his first question to me was, can I see the pricing tool? And I said, you're the first person to ever asked me that as the first question. I'm delighted. And we've moved on from that. And the, the profile of people we've got now, very different to what we'd have been trying to deal with 20 years ago, trying to push pricing tools at people.
0: Do you see that relationship between the underwriters and pricing actuaries being a key component in terms of what the future of underwriting might look like? Is those two groups working more collaboratively together and kind of that kind of sharing analytics? Or do you still see them as two very separate groups? No, I
2: see them I I see them as a team. I really do see them as a team. When we started out, yes, we were two groups because people would be quite rude about us all the time. But that's like 20 years ago. Now it's it's a team. It really is. Either they're they're in a central team farmed out to a underwriting or they're sat with underwriters. And you know, if we want to sort of cut to the chase a little bit on the underwriter of the future, I see I see the underwriters skills of today being identified and sort of deconstructed into a team with the underwriter in charge so you know we have business development people now we didn't have them then the underwriter did all that you know himself herself or probably himself those days we've got proper business development people we've got marketing people we've got engineers and risk experts cyber engineers everything else people who can give advice on what are good risks and we've got actuaries who can help with pricing tools and analyze data and turn it back into pricing and rates and we've got machine learning and everything else and i see the underwriter's job is to know enough about each of these areas to run a team and ask challenging questions but they're running a team of experts one of whom might be a pricing actuary. so yeah i don't i don't see a them and us thing at all i think some people might call it a pod you know working in sort of perfect harmony on on a product line So the underwriter
1: of the future is is better at managing and pulling together insights from a team rather than kind of doing it all themselves, somewhere in their head, just making good judgments and nobody kind of understands how and why they do that.
2: Absolutely. All that skill is still there. But you're now rather than the underwriter having to sort of be a can I say one man band, one person band, literally, you know, clashing the cymbals and the harmonica and everything else, which is hard work, you actually have a team of people who are helping them and the underwriter is managing, as you say. So they've got leadership capability, communications capability, and, and, and a good broad knowledge of all these activities. Now, they might be better at talking to the pricing actuary than the marketing person because that's their bent. But they'll be good enough at each one to run that team. I mean, that
1: throws up an obvious challenge in my mind because it seems pretty clear that to be a really good underwriter, you need to back yourself and have conviction. And be willing to take a calculated risk. Sometimes what that has translated to, at least in my perception, is underwriters who are not always very open to accepting other people's, you know, differing opinions. But in the model you're talking about, you know, if you've got a team effectively advising you on all these various aspects, you've got to listen to them, you've got to take more advice. Does that actually take away the special source where the underwriter just, you know, still backs themselves, or is it for is it for the
2: best? I think it's for the best. The underwriter is still making the key decision. That's the key thing. And we were discussing this a few weeks ago, actually. We have a number of areas where underwriters have to refer to people for stuff. If the premium's bigger than this, or if it's a cover holder, it has to go through this process, or it has to go to compliance for sign off because of this. And we're trying to change the language so that rather than the underwriter thinking, oh, how am I going to get this past compliance? The underwriter is thinking, how can I make sure this is compliant? So I can write it, you know, compliantly. So, I think the underwriter still has to make the decision. Despite being given advice by all these experts, the job of the underwriter is still to make that decision because the minute the underwriter is not making the decision, it's being made by compliance or an actuary or somebody else, the underwriter is no longer empowered to underwrite and all these other people become underwriters. As a CEO, the thing I'd like to do least is to make an underwriting decision. I'd like people to come to me and say, I've taken some advice, we want to write this risk because... The combined ratio is sensible. It's compliant. It meets with our our goals and our criteria and our, our plans. So, yeah, I, 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 the underwriter absolutely has to make the final decision. That's super crucial to me. And empowerment is really important to me as well. So, I wouldn't see it any other way.
0: To the extent that these changes are already starting to happen, as we were saying earlier, things are aligning together. How far down this kind of journey? Do you think we are in terms of, you know, the skills that underwriters have or the expertise kind of within teams or the technical capabilities? How far down this journey are we and how far have we got to go? Is there kind of an area that's more progressed and you think, oh, yeah, you know, in time, you know, a few more years of good recruitment and culture development, we've got that. But how how reach the, the avenues developing?
2: That's a great question. I guess the answer is I can't just give you a score out of ten, can I? That would be a bit too basic. We're four out of ten. We are moving well on all fronts, I think. I think we have intention, we have expectations. Across the whole market, this is not just with us at larkel I think across the market with things like Blueprint 2, the work the work we're doing on data, that's such a clear thing. You know, the word digital backbone or data backbone, you know, that's such a fundamental thing. And I know you guys have talked about that before. It's surprising we we're not there already, actually. But you know, we're going to get there with, like we say, things converging. I think the way we do business development is changing. I think the conversations we have with brokers and our customers now. It's different. So we're talking to brokers more about how we can underwrite portfolios of risk, which I think is important try and reduce that transaction by transaction activity, which costs money. We're talking about doing things digitally. So the smaller risks can come straight through, hit a pricing model, get a quote and go back again. So we look a bit more like direct line. So I think a lot of things, we're moving a long way from where we've been, but I think we still know we've got a decent way to go. But I think one of the key things is culture. I think people want it. I think that's the key thing is the when I walk around the underwriting floor now, I just see a different generation of people who want to change, who want to use technology to basically write more business, more profitable business, without having to hire twice as many people. Now, we've got a team in our German office who... When you look at the amount of automation they're trying to put through, you think, "Well, you're putting yourselves out of a job." But they're not. They want to sit there and sort of write huge amounts of premium with computers, and then look after the computers effectively. So uh, that switch has happened, and now it's just just a case of execution.
0: I feel like this across many different areas where you know we've got this technology and capability, but actually, how much have we been using it to its full capacity? How much do we still do a lot of manual interventions? And, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff internally to make sure we can automate as much as we can so we can really focus on the value adds. Analytics, you've mentioned, is going to be a key part of this. Is there, a, you know, a lot more to go on this point?
2: I, I think, again, one of the things that's often held us up is getting the right data to analyze and therefore being able to push data through our systems in a sensible, efficient, low cost way. and. Again, the systems are coming online to be able to do that. I think one of the other things that slowed us down is binder business. Everything I've tried to ever do to do with something clever, basically, someone goes, "Well, that's okay," but half this book is binders, and we haven't got any data, so oh, that's not going to work. But now we have. You know, we have got we have full binder data coming through as good as our open market data. We've got to keep pushing on that, and you know, we prefer to work with cover holders who can invest in their technology and provide us with that data. So I think that is a crucial area where. Improvements are happening. And then, yeah, the more automation we can do, the better. You know, we've got tools coming online around the whole organization that filter inboxes, you know, filter incoming risks. So they promote the ones that are in the classes we're more likely to issue a quote on, that come from brokers who are more likely to bind with us, uh, in classes that we like, what we call our greener classes. So there's a lot of work going on to make the process faster from quotes through bind and then through claims and everything else question for you, Nick, and maybe a challenge to the market.
1: I think we're agreed that there's still a bit of a journey for us to go on to achieve that sort of optimal underwriter of the future, underwriting firm of the future model. But equally, we can see the way to it. And you know, a lot of the, the reason it's going to take a few years is because of cultural change. Does that mean there's a gap in the market for a firm to come in, make a fresh start, kind of get this right from day one and steal a real march on others?
2: It might be that gap has been filled because obviously quite a few companies have come in in the last few years with exquisite timing, with allegedly fairly thin you know, expenses and fairly thin systems and everything else. So there possibly is. I think the difficulty in insurance is there is, to some extent, a barrier to entry, including data, technology, expertise, claims handling expertise as well. Because obviously, if you're a startup, you need to buy in the claims handling expertise. So there probably has been a gap. And that gap is probably being filled at the moment. What's incumbent upon everyone else who is incumbent, as it were, is to catch up quickly and to not let legacy systems be a barrier. Is to do whatever data conversions you need to get your systems working and up to date and not say, oh, we've got five different systems. We can't get hold of the data, which is um, inexcusable these days.
0: The obvious benefit from, I think, uh, investing in a lot of these changes and moving forward is obviously you can write more business. Do you see any other kind of key benefits, you know, just in managing someone trying to make a business case to their boss? We need to we need to make these changes. You know, we need to get rid of these legacy data systems. We need to combine together. What are the other kind of key benefits that can be gained from kind of transforming your underwriting process in these ways?
2: The benefits really are what I, th- I think about the customer first and how these things benefit the front end, whether it's the broker or the customer. And I guess the first thing we can do in terms of having better processes is get back to the customer quickly or the broker quickly so we provide a better service. A quick, a quick no is better than a slow no for anybody. But it goes beyond that. It means that we can provide maybe a better price to the customer that's more appropriate for their level of risk. And therefore, by better pricing, more accurate pricing, yes, of course, we get better results. But then the customer gets better information as well, because what we might be able to do is say, thank you for your submission. Your premium is X, but actually we've analysed your data and your business. And because we've written thousands of companies like you, we know that if you were to adjust your processes and your business like this, you'd get a discount. We could charge you a bit less. And that's got to be good for everybody because what we're giving them, adv- we're giving them a risk advice. We're trying to give them advice on how not to have a claim. And to be a- at the end of the day, nobody wants to have a claim. So if we can save them, you know, having a loss and going through the hassle of having to make a claim, that's good for everyone, good for the world. And I think that's where insurance sort of helps the economy and the world in general by helping reduce risk. But I think cyber is a great poster child for this. I mean, cyber we can talk about all the time, but the fact we can do virtually continuous underwriting of our cyber customers by looking at their systems regularly to see whether they're robust enough, you know, I think is a, is a great example of what we could do across the whole industry.
0: Charles, any other kind of thoughts from you? I know you've obviously did talk at Almag this week on kind of underwriters and stuff. Anything that kind of came out of that that you wanted to bring into the conversation here?
1: Well, one thing I wanted to talk about a little is the concept of star underwriters. Because I guess another feature of the London market historically has been that there are certain people who genuinely appear to be stars. Either they've got just very special relationships or they have some kind of X factor when it comes to risk selection and sniffing out the, the good of the bad stuff. Or perhaps they just have such a strong reputation that nobody will dare to bring them bad business. Those would be some examples of what might have been the, the qualities of a star underwriter in the past. But two questions really one is does the star underwriter still have a role in the future and if so what are the slightly different skills that maybe those stars will have and secondly a more sort of disruptor type question is could an insurer succeed by instead of having very expensive and very hard to get star underwriters having a star process and competent underwriters who can run the process what do you think
2: that's a great question i have a slight reaction to the phrase star underwriter to start with i guess to me that probably suggests ego which is something that we don't do at Markel at all. So I'm not into ego. It suggests high salaries. And again, you know, we prefer to work without egos and to pay big bonuses when people are successful. And we'd like nothing more than paying big bonuses. So I think the star underwriter of the past, who is the big name, you know, that's not who I am. I'm, so, I'm sort of barely an alpha male. So I'm not really into the star underwriter concept. I'm definitely into high performing underwriter. I'm definitely into people who, as we've said before have those skills to run a team who are curious who develop business and great relationships through developing trust can run a team can deal with the actuaries the business development people the, the data science people and i'm very much into people who are high performing so i'd also shy away from the word competent i feel it's a, perhaps a little bit sort of a bland word so i think an excellent process that's populated by excellent people yes so i don't know whether i've gone straight between your two questions as in, no star underwriters with big egos. I want to have everything. We want to have good process. And good process, of course, attracts great people as well, because they don't want to be bogged down doing sort of the manual work. So maybe that that answers your question. It's great people with a great process, and definitely no big egos that you kind of feel, you know, that there's the balance of power that you're kind of in hock to to your employer, employee, because they're the star underwriter who's Threatening to leave. That's that doesn't really sit well with me either.
1: Oh, I mean that's music to my ears, and and I'm sure that's very much consistent with the sort of prevailing wind of change across the market. Hey, there was another area I wanted to touch on, and Jess, please feel free to jump in on this as well, is cognitive biases. It's an area of personal interest for me, and insurance just seems to be such a perfect setting for thinking about and trying to mitigate cognitive biases. In your experience, how up to speed are underwriters on the fact that they will have biases the brokers will have biases and that there may be ways to be more successful by counteracting those
2: well i mean that comes back to that earlier comment we made about gut feeling and what we did 20 years ago and that that kind of thing i find biases really interesting as well i mean as as long as i've been you know sitting around watching decisions being made from quite a young age in this market it's sort of horrifying sometimes to see how decisions get made just with heuristics just like people say well this is like that therefore this is going to happen like that happened and we don't really dig into data but i do see again back to the the underwriters that I see across the floor now I think they're very aware of that they're very aware of trying to back up their decisions with data and we're not having a you know it's not like it's a massive data takeover and the role for human beings has gone by any by any means at all but being aware of those biases I think is really crucial as we know there's hundreds of them as well there's so many of them and being aware of them is crucial absolutely but yeah insurance is a is a great place we've got tons of experienced people we got claims coming in, which can lead to bias because the claim that came in yesterday means we want to come out of a class because of what happened yesterday, even though nothing happened last week. So the delay between obviously writing business and getting the results means there's plenty of time for biases to emerge as well. So it's a rich, rich bed of biases. But yeah, I think people are more aware of them than they have been.
0: We did a great episode last season with one of our colleagues, Zoe, on kind of biases and stuff, which was really interesting to kind of just explore with her across the business one of the things we talked about was like the unknown unknown. So to the extent that you can use like data to kind of help mitigate some of the biases that you might be kind of aware of, are there any other things that you're kind of putting in place or you're doing to kind of, you know, more widely challenge the biases that might be kind of there and we just don't know about them?
2: Well, one thing we have done is I think with COVID and other things that have happened that have taken us by surprise the unknown unknowns is that when we're doing scenario analysis, some people would look at the quantum of a loss and say, gosh, if these things happen, that's the loss. Then somebody else would say, well, that'll never happen. Or the probability is X. And then somebody would actually, and this process happened. I've seen it happen in one place where somebody took all these scenarios and they multiplied them by the likely probability and came up with an expected value, as we all understand. And then they kind of reordered them And what I said, well, let's just throw away those probabilities, because anything that can happen probably will happen at some point, or we have to be aware of it happening. So I've kind of banned the phrase, that'll never happen. And we just look at the size of the loss, and we think about how we can mitigate it. And we don't try and think too much about whether it might or might not happen. Because I've seen, I've been back through risk committee and emerging risk committee notes and papers and seen discussions about pandemics from five ten years ago because i did it two years ago because i was interested <laughs> and i saw meeting notes people said this will never happen but well it's happening in the middle east with SARS and MERS. so but anyway that's a bias i think is people not understanding how things can happen so whichever bias that is where we kind of underestimate the really extreme things and overestimate the nearer things yes there's a word for that somewhere yeah i'm so
1: glad you mentioned that example because there's a closely related dynamic that i spot which is you know, We were talking with a group of NEDs yesterday, and one of the things we chatted about is, well, if there was a world war, and obviously there's a maybe a slightly higher chance of that now than there would have been before, but putting aside the probabilities, if, if it happened, does that really mean all bets are off and there's really no point in trying to plan the practical actions that you would take, or... Is it actually doubly important to plan those actions because there will you will still need to pay claims, you will still need to take care of all sorts of mundane things, in the way that people had to do in the wake of COVID.
2: Yeah, and in the way they had to do in the wake of wars that sort of happened before. So, absolutely, depending on where, where and when and how that is happening, we have to look after our people and we have to look after our policyholders and businesses will keep trying to trade as they did during COVID, and and our job is to support them. You know, When this latest Ukraine crisis started, I know people were saying, well, do we have any war exposure? I said, well, we do. We, we write war business. The Lloyd's Market's been going for 300 years. There's been a few wars in that time. We write war business. We aggregate war business. We buy reinsurance to make sure that our aggregates are managed. And I think some people were a bit surprised that we have a book of business that we've always called war. They hadn't really thought about it, but it responds to wars. So our job is to be there, whatever happens, and to make sure our you know, operational resilience is a big topic at the moment as well. So we have to make sure we're capable of servicing our customers looking after our people. The irony is, of course, we were discussing the other day, the more digital we go, the harder it is to build operational resilience. Funny enough, manual processes seem to be quite resilient. So some sort of balance of digital and manual or, or whatever, keeping an abacus in the bottom drawer, I don't know, <laughs> might be needed to some degree.
0: Great. Nick, any questions you've got for us?
2: you asked me questions about about where we are on this sort of journey towards maybe perfect underwriting or the sort of most developed underwriting from cradle to grave what are you seeing when you're traveling around visiting your clients where are they most advanced and where are they perhaps least advanced and, and, and needing help
1: yeah so what i'm finding speaking to firms be it ceos or chief underwriting officers or even in some cases you know risk or actuarial professionals I would say everyone in the market recognizes the need to evolve further away from the old gut feel type strategy and to something that's more of a balance of gut feel and entrepreneurial flair, but underpinned by an appropriate amount of analysis. So nobody's disputing that that's important. And actually, I think that's progress compared to a couple of years ago. People are on different stages of that journey and actually a good way of measuring where they are on the journey to look at the type of obstacles they're encountering. Those who are earlier on the journey are encountering obstacles like lack of data, lack of resource, lack of clarity on setting a roadmap for improvement. Those who are further on the journey are starting to discover that, yeah, they put in place the building blocks to make underwriting more scientific, but then the barriers you need to get through are culture so is everyone bought into it a new way of doing things? Is that too painful for underwriters to accept, or is it being presented in a skillful way so that they feel that they're you know on board and also ultimately it's it's about making sure that the board is willing to perhaps recast the strategy in terms that appropriately recognize the close relationship between underwriting, you know, entrepreneurial decision-making and analytics. So if the board doesn't change the way the strategy is written, again, the hope of making real changes is not there. So, yeah, I think we're going to see very rapid change in the next two or three years. And I also agree with what you said earlier, which is, is there a gap to be filled by new firms who can just come in and get the stuff right without legacy baggage? And yeah, I reckon there's a couple in the market now who might just have filled that gap. We, you know, they've still got a lot to prove, but I think things are going to change. And, and so, yes, very tough competitively for those who are still weighed down by that baggage going forward.
0: We like to end on some fun questions. You can't work in financial services anymore, can't work in the insurance industry or nothing like that. What
2: would your dream job be? Well, this is my favourite dream job I'm very happy to talk about, which is I like driving. So I would have been a cross-country rally driver, hurtling through some forest in a little sort of 4 by 4 hatchback with a co-driver yelling instructions. I'd love to have done that. So a bit more wild, a few more risks. But if I couldn't have been a maths teacher, which could have been another option, I'd be a rally driver.
0: Oh, that's amazing!
2: That's one of the best answers we've had, isn't it? I've now got this
1: mental image focused in my mind of Nick and a little GR Yaris, you know, <laughs> causing, causing trouble around the Surrey countryside. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. So the the other
2: one would be um if Jess and I were coming to dinner at your house, what would you make for us? That's a great question because actually, we post COVID, we've just got back to having dinner parties at home, which is which has been fantastic. So good timing. And if I was doing the menu, I well. Okay, so starter, uh, I'm quite an old-fashioned, you know, brought up in the UK in the 70s, so prawn cocktail would be the uh, opening gambit. So lots of nice fresh lettuce and some prawns and merry roast sauce. And then I'm quite like the lamb shank, slow-cooked, falling off the bone with a bit of, I did it last week, dauphin potatoes, lots of cream, lots of garlic, and some greens, beans or broccoli. Yeah, the dauphin aren't great for the waistline, but they're quite good and of course we could probably fit you in this this sunday if that. If that works. <laughs> well i guess the topical answer also is what's the dessert because i'd probably have to have a go at the what's it called the platinum pudding so the lemon the lemon trifle with the swiss rolls and mandarin coolie or whatever so i'm told it's easy to make that's why it was chosen as the platinum pudding so um i'd probably have a go at making that and hope i didn't you know, make a decent fist of it
1: post a nice picture on instagram if it looks really good
2: yeah, there's a picture of it in the paper today actually so uh, yeah yeah have a look it's
1: great oh thanks so much nick it's been a really really good conversation very lovely and to looking catch up forward to continuing this chat as we hopefully bump into you in in person in the market
0: that's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode.
1: This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freeguard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
0: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.